Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. I will be joined by Abby Martin and Mark Klein, who is a former AT&T employee who blew the whistle on NSA illegal bulk data collection back in 2004. Mark, why don't we um, why don't we begin with you just briefly describing your story about what you saw at AT&T that made you blow the, blow the whistle? Yeah, sure. Um, my story began back in 2002 when I was a technician in a small AT&T office in San Francisco of just four technicians in the office. And we got, in the summer of 2002, we got an email telling us openly that uh, a representative of the National Security Agency was coming to our office for something. So that immediately tipped me off that something probably illegal was happening. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I, I knew from my memory of the 70s that the NSA has no business doing domestic spying. Their charter right. was in foreign spying. Um, so the guy showed up in our office. He, he had to go talk to a management guy about something that we weren't privy to, obviously. Um, so we went... We sort of forgot about it for a while, but word quickly got around that the NSA guy was talking to a, a management technician who was working in a new room being built a few blocks away at an office called 611 Folsom Street. Um, and over the next weeks and months, we found that this room was being installed that only this one guy could go into None of the union techs could go into it. So we knew right away that this was a secret NSA room being built. And the following year, 2003, I happened to be transferred to that office and was assigned to oversee the Internet room. So and in that job, I gathered more documents, uh, engineering documents, that showed the connections from the internet room to the secret room, which was one floor below. And so I figured out by the fall of 2003, what they were doing was they were copying the internet data stream going through the, the internet room at that AT&T office, copying wholesale the entire internet stream down to the secret room. I knew right away, as soon as I saw those documents, that that was totally illegal because there was no warrants going on there at all. It was just a total blind copy of everybody's information, email, web browsing, whatever. And what also enraged me was my job was to hook up new circuits to the cabinet that copied the data bits down to the secret room. So I was, in my mind, I thought of it as wiring up the Big Brother machine. And so I was angry and frustrated because I, I was in my late 50s. I couldn't lose my job. But there I was doing this thing that I knew was totally illegal and immoral, for that matter. So I sat on it for a while. And then following year, 2004, I took a buyout and retired, but I took my, the documents with me. And But I still was afraid to do anything because that was a scary time. 
until the New York Times in December 2005 came out with their story revealing that the Bush administration was doing warrantless wiretapping with the help of the phone companies. And as soon as I saw that, I, I thought, aha, well, I have the evidence. So that's when I decided to come forward. And so in January 2006, I started shopping around my documents and my story to whoever would listen. And, uh, and that month I went to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They were very interested. I also started showing it to media, and at first I got sidetracked in a, with the L.A. Times. That's a side story in itself. L.A. Times was promising a big story, and then after they talked to General Hayden of the NSA and the DNI director, Director of National Intelligence, the L.A. Times killed the story. So I later went to the New York Times and got the story out, and then I, then I had TV interviews and so forth. Mark, really, really quickly, um, so what exactly did the documents say? The documents proved that there was this kind of blanket collection uh, copy of the internet traffic and um, right into AT&T servers, right to the NSA, correct? Yeah, these were AT&T engineering documents designed for technicians to know how things are, how equipment is connected between different pieces of equipment. So it just showed connections. And the documents showed, well, two of them were designed for the technicians who had to install the splitter cabinet, which did the copying. And that showed the insertion of a splitter cabinet. The other document showed the connection between this splitter cabinet on the seventh floor internet room down to the sixth floor secret room. So it just showed the actual connection. Mm -hmm. And anybody who had some technical background could see right away what they were doing. And Robbie, before you move on, um, I wanted to quickly ask Mark, um, did you talk to anyone from AT&T when you kind of saw this flagrant violation of uh, constitutionality, any of your peers or management? And if so, how did they react? I didn't approach management. I figured... um, she either didn't know much about it or didn't want to talk about it anyway. And I didn't want to jeopardize my job by looking too, um, too much like a troublemaker. People chatted by, among themselves and with each other, and, and people we knew this was some NSA setup. Um, one of the guys who I, whose job I took, took over in the Internet room because he was retiring, I took over his job, and I asked him at one point, I said, uh, it looks like this room is near the phone switch, so I assume they're tapping into phone calls. And he immediately snapped back, no, Internet. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and he was right. If you look at the documents, the fiber from the room doesn't go to the phone switch. It goes upstairs to the Internet data stream which is what they were doing. They were interested in capturing the Internet data, which is digital. And, right. that, and that was back during an era when most people were still on analog, like landline telephones. Um, that was, yeah, landline was still the big deal. AT&T was rapidly trying to transfer their phone call systems over to totally digital. But back then, largely it was analog 
and the digital phone calls were just people who use Skype or something like that. And you can be sure the Skype calls were being copied in from the internet data stream. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I've heard you, I've heard you tell this story before, but I mean, I still, I still can't wrap my head around. I, I still, it's still so strange to know that they actually sent a memo around um, your office and correct me if I'm wrong in, in describing this, that an NSA employee was actually coming to, to give you a visit or coming to give yeah. AT&T a visit. I mean, that seems very yeah, unusual. Seems <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, it was only an office of four people and this was not a regular AT&T central office where they have guards at the front door. This was a small office uh, where us, we, the technicians, would open the door for people. So I assume they let us know this guy was coming so we could open the door for him <laughs> as a visitor because we had to guard the door. Uh, as it happened, I was the one who opened the door to this guy and directed him to the manager for his, you know, whatever they talked about. Um, so I assume that's why they did it. And they they usually figured, well, at least this manager was more open than others, I suppose, with people. And you know, people are afraid of losing their jobs, so they don't talk about such things generally. Right. So, so do you? So it wasn't it wasn't that the NSA sent like a memo to your workplace. It was that your management told you that that an NSA right. employee was coming. Okay. Not, it was not an email from me. <laughs> okay. Because the way I was imagining it was sort of like the government was like, yeah, you know, we're just going to come stop by and, no. you know, check out. <laughs> management, heads up. I was surprised, though, that they mentioned NSA in the email. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is very surprising. Um, you know, looking back on, on you know, the last over a decade of, of some of the other revelations that have come out um, from the inside of the NSA, you specifically are in a unique position of being one of the first post 9-11 NSA whistleblowers that worked in the private sector and not for the U.S. government. Right. So, so being someone w with never any overt or professional loyalty to the U.S. government, do you think this gives you a, a different or unique perspective on NSA abuses compared to some of the other, you know, people who come from inside government? Well, I was in a unique position and I, I realized it at the time, and that's actually what impelled me to come forward, because I realized back in 2006, when the New York Times had revealed this stuff, that there might be some NSA people who wanted to do whistleblowing, but they were restrained by severe government laws against breaking their security oath, whereas I knew I never signed any security oath, so they couldn't get me that way. Um, so that actually, I thought, gave me a, a freer hand. Another thing that gave me a broader perspective was I didn't have simply a narrow technical background. I, I went to engineering school at Cornell in the early 60s, and as the Vietnam War broke out, I transferred to liberal arts and ended up with a degree in history. So I had this sort of hybrid education background of engineering and history. And I knew about things that the, that government do that should not that they should not do. And in the sixties in the Vietnam period, I was an anti war protester. I marched on Washington and I knew about uh 
in the 60s and 70s when the, the scandal came out that the NSA was helping the government track domestic anti-war people, which was totally illegal, right? Was that pre-church committee? That was the uh, revealed by the church committee, I believe. It was called Operation Minaret, uh, which was designed to track uh, anti-war people and other supposedly, you know, mis- untrustful, el- untrustworthy elements. I think Nixon started it when he was uh, angry about anti-war protesters. Um, well, actually, LBJ probably started it. And then Nixon followed through on it. But I think it was the church committee that exposed it, if I remember right. So, so Mark, how did your, um, how did your views on government change over the years? I mean, I know that you, you were obviously, uh, you know, you were active early in your life and then, you know, working at AT&T, going through 9-11, seeing everything that was happening in the Bush administration. And I guess fast forwarding until today, talk about how your views about government has evolved, um, because I know that you were recently quoted in Ars Technica <laughs> saying that the government's a bunch of slime balls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I, I was talking to that guy in the courtroom. That's how he got, got that quote. <laughs> yeah, everything you say to reporters, I've realized, is on the record unless you say off the record. <laughs> I know that. I'm not afraid of that. <laughs> so anyway, but um, a lot of people had their eyes opened after the Vietnam War. I didn't trust the government all along. I guess I come from that kind of um, background as a my family were, uh, uh, you know, FDR, FDR liberals and Jewish socialists, you know. So I never trusted the government much, and I never signed on to um, the Democratic Party as the lesser evil over the Republicans. Uh, so I, I never trusted them all along. Um, I, back in '64, for instance, going on that thread. A lot of my friends were going with the SDS slogan part of the way with LBJ because LBJ promised to be the peace candidate against the warmongering Goldwater. And I warned him even back then, he's lying to you. I'm <laughs> lying to you. And sure enough, as soon as LBJ got elected, he escalated the war. And it was revealed by the Pentagon Papers in 1971 that even as LBJ was running for president in 64, he was already planning the escalation. So he was lying through his teeth. So I had that attitude towards the government way back then, and everything I've seen since then has confirmed to me they're all a bunch of effing liars. <laughs> um, uh, You're allowed to swear and, on the podcast, just, just FYI. But. Yes, I noticed you used some <laughs> words I wouldn't normally use. Okay, that's good. Fucking liars. <laughs> they, they have their own agenda, and they just look for opportunities to push it through when it seems like the popular sentiment might be in their favor. So like, um, for instance, Bush had an agenda to attack Iraq as soon as he got into office. That's been revealed through various books that have come out since then. So his opportunity arose when 9-11 happened. Uh, so he just used that to push a war, which was first an attack on Afghanistan 
But Afghanistan was consciously just a stepping stone to Iraq. And as soon as he got in Afghanistan, generals started complaining that he was shifting his forces towards Iraq because his real target was Iraq all along. So anyway, they're a bunch of fucking liars. They got their own agenda. It's geared to empire. That's all they care about is their fucking empire. And um, yeah. and it goes back a long ways. I, you know, like I say, I'm a student of history. Uh, the U.S. became an imperialist power in 1898 when it stole a bunch of colonies from Spain and uh, started this long march of dirty war. Which, which they started, by the way, in, um, in uh, the Philippines from 1898 to, like, 1903. They fought several years with tens of thousands of troops to kill many thousands of Philippines and crush the Filipino rebellion. And that was where the U.S. learned to do things like waterboarding, which right. back, back then they called the water cure. That's also where the U.S. Army learned to do uh, strategic hamlets, like in Vietnam, which was actually concentration camps, where you take the rural population, because you don't trust them, you put them in, in little concentration camps, surrounded by barbed wire, and then the rest of the countryside is just a free fire zone, where you just bomb everything to shit and kill everybody. And that's what, that's what they did in the Philippines in the 1890s. Okay? Right. So, so the U.S. learned that. They learned torture. They learned concentration camps and free fire zones way back then. And they haven't stopped since. Yeah, I think it's funny that the CIA is getting on Twitter and trying to kind of revamp its image. And they're saying, look, we're open and transparent. Meanwhile, they've been subverting democracy for over the last, you know, 50 years, and it's just unbelievable when you look at their past, and that's even what we know, according to William Bloom's book, Killing Hope. So, so Mark, I can assume that as, as such a studious observer of history that you were not swayed at all by the kind of Obama hope and change campaign, and that you, I mean, and this whole thing that we've learned now that he signed off on the spying program, I mean, do you find him equally as complicit in the entire adoption of, of the Bush surveillance grid. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I had the same problem with the, the Obama thing. He sounded very nice. The only thing that was heartening about Obama was it was nice to see the race barrier broken as far as the, the presidential race for the White House. I mean, I was involved a little in the civil rights movement, and to finally see a black guy in, you know, win and take the White House and break that barrier. Well, that was hard. Right. But lots of people, but I didn't support Obama, just like I didn't support LBJ, because I, I knew the forces behind him were the same empire forces. So, but a lot of friends, you know, I knew were into that. And I had to be careful what I said about Obama, because everybody was trying to cover his ass and <laughs> excuse everything he did. Oh, he just needs to, you know, get the uh, middle the uh, center vote or whatever. Yeah, or uh, we need to wait till his second term so that yeah, then he'll right, fulfill right. all his promises. And then look, now we only have two and a half years yeah. left. And no. uh, it's it's this whole it's this whole myth of this pendulum swinging back and forth that keeps people in this paradigm of like a decade 
only it's like no one can see back as you're clearly outlining mark when you need to kind of acknowledge that history just repeats itself and i'm glad that you've you've definitely uh, broken through that paradigm and i just hope that other people can wake up to that well it's 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 sad in a way and a little depressing to see the same people going around in this same circle i've seen for the last 50 or 60 years you know yeah, uh, about the circle around the the two parties and the lesser evil and all that <laughs> shit, you know. Um, well, I wanted to I wanted to jump to my next question, and yeah. after hearing you outline your your body of knowledge about basically just how messed up the government's been for so long, um, I'm I'm just curious though. Do you think? or do you have any faith at all that the government at this point can internally reform itself to not violate no, the constitution? None, zero, nada. And, uh, and I get, at, oh, sorry, you go want ahead. some empirical evidence, just look at what's happened in the last two years over the NSA stuff, just the past year. Uh, every, both parties in Congress and the judiciary have moved to protect the NSA from any attempted serious reform. Um, the two parties joined together to pass the FISA Amendments Act, which in 2008, which gave immunity to the phone companies and also legalized what Bush had been doing totally illegally. Exactly, so that, yeah. So Congress and the two party leaderships, and that includes Obama and Nancy Pelosi and all the darling liberal types put their stamp of approval on the NSA back then. Obama didn't even wait till he took office. Right? right as soon as he was running for president in July 2008, he switched sides and helped pass the immunity bill. Even yeah. Though he had, yeah, retroactive he had immunity right. as well. He vowed to oppose it, then he switched sides. I think that's when my brother and I kind of realized after, of course, he said he wasn't going to prosecute any Bush war criminals. We were like, wait a minute. <laughs> this guy already has voted. You know, <laughs> he's already made his loyalties pretty clear here. He's very clever at making speeches that liberals like to hear. Yeah. All, all kinds of words that you like to listen to. Like, that's not <laughs> who we are. He likes to use that. He's like, that's not who we are. Torture is not who we are. And, uh, we need sustainable development, sustainability. Love that word, because liberals like right. to do that. But he also and he also doubles down on the notion of American exceptionalism. You know, every time he gives a speech, which I, I find completely offensive. It's offensive. Yeah, well, that's his uh, way of saying uh, America shall rule forever and ever. Um, <laughs> so now he's pivoting to Asia. It's a little bit fun, although it's sad to see the American empire crumbling in the Middle East after it's sad because so many people are dying because of it. But, um, you know, they had this dream of the American empire in Iraq and elsewhere. And now look what they've got. They got a, a complete bloody mess, but now there's going to be a huge slaughter. Yeah. And it, it, Mark, before we get into, I want, we also want to get into like some criticisms of how the leaks are being doled out. And, and I know that you've addressed this as well, but before we get into that, I wanted to just kind of hone in on this private sector spying grid, because 
for some odd reason, people don't seem to care as much because they think that, you know, all the spying in the private sector is being done for advertising gathering. But in reality, I mean, when you have two entities working in conjunction with each other to provide this information, it's equally as scary, or at least it should be. And you hear the talking points, you know, the private sector can't arrest you. They can't audit you. They can't hold you indefinitely without charges. You don't volunteer your data to the U.S. government like you do with Google or Facebook. I mean, obviously, these are true technically, but... I mean, if we're assessing this purely on an ethical level, how can we understand our privacy in a free society? I mean, isn't private sector surveillance or data mining purposes um, an egregious violation of the same ethical principles, voluntary or not? Yeah, well, I think actually people have gotten more upset and realized more the fingers of government and everything uh, by the Snowden revelations, because it was Snowden that's revealed the very close relationship between the private sector and the government with companies like Google and Yahoo and Facebook. And so people have gotten a lot more uncomfortable over that because of, because of Snowden's revelations. Um, the problem is people don't see exactly what they can do about it. Um, but I think people are more upset now uh, or feel that the, that that the private sector is more of a threat than they realized before. And that's thanks to Snowden's revelations. Do you, do you believe CEOs like Mark Zuckerberg and Eric Schmidt when they say like, oh, we had no idea that the NSA was doing this and they just kind of play dumb? I mean, as someone who worked at AT&T, it seemed like you, the management was pretty well aware of this kind of backdoor. I find it hard to believe. Some of them might, be, might have been caught flat-footed by Google um, apparently, from what I read, allowed NSA in the front door to to take stuff that they legally claimed, and then the NSA went went ahead and went in through the back door anyway, anyway by spying on their, you know, international servers. Um, but the point is that that Google NSA took some stuff that Google apparently was not aware of by yeah. going in to their international servers and the communications between their international servers, which were not encrypted. Now they, they say they're working to encrypt them, which is a good thing. Um, and I guess so, that brings me to, to the next point. I mean, the, a lot of these companies are using this opportunity right now to exclaim to the public that they are going to reform themselves internally and encrypt their servers like Google. Um, but I guess, you know, going back all this history about just how, how dis, um, dishonest the U S government has been, shouldn't we also not have any faith in these, at least in terms of what these corporations say about how they're going to internally reform? I mean, what is your thought on Google saying they're going to encrypt the data? Do, do you think that that's good enough or do you think that, they might just be saying that and still, you know, secretly working with the U.S. government on wire, warrantless wiretap. Right, like, how do, who do we know how to trust here? It's really tough. I give you a total guideline, but there's clearly been a spectrum of different attitudes among the different private corporate players. Some have been more cooperative with the NSA than others. Like, if you look at slide that Snowden re- released of, you know, from 2003, I think, or four to 2010, he showed 
different corporations joining the NSA's PRISM program, and early on was Microsoft. Microsoft, as I, said, I think, has been among the worst. Among the last was Apple, um, and also, I think, Skype. Yeah. But until Skype was bought by Microsoft. Um, Which is interesting so, to me, the Apple thing, because Apple exclusively used AT&T as a carrier until only a few years ago. And, and, you know, well, you know, they <laughs> didn't know the extent, I guess, of what the NSA was doing. Um, but um, so there's different um, attitudes. Then on, on, the be- on the most extreme end, you get companies like LavaBit, which chose to synth simply shut down rather than give away everything to the NSA. That's a very principled stance that most businessmen can't af- don't want to <laughs> do that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but the point is, they have different attitudes. Also, corporations have a more narrow agenda. They're not so much interested in spying on everybody as they are making profits. Yeah, they're, right. They're actually a little bit pissed now because the revelations of the NSA has hurt their international business, which right. is why they're, why they're trying to, you know, boast that they're trying to improve their security. I hope they are. Make it harder for the NSA. But it's, a, it's an arms race. As soon as you, you get something you think is secure, the NSA is endlessly pro- probing for weaknesses everywhere. So, and they have the advantage because they've got an endless amount of resources, you know, 40,000 people. Um, Mark, I wanted to bring up um, someone that I, I had interviewed on the show a, a while back, um, Russ Tice, um, one of the first um, or one of the earliest NSA whistleblowers. He said that he found burn bags, quote unquote, burn bags of like wiretap orders handwritten to wiretap directly from Dick Cheney that he found out of Judge Alito, then Senator Barack Obama. Um, Russell Tice was one of the first of the NSA in the in the last fourteen years. He was the first, I think, in my memory. Um, he didn't get much publicity for a couple of reasons. Um, one, uh, he had no documents. So right. once you have no documents, all you have is your word and you've got to establish credibility. And then the NSA um, tried to destroy his credibility by painting him as a mentally unstable, crazy person who they had to let go. And that sort of label stuck for a while. So some media stayed away from him because of that. And I think he's gotten more traction in recent years, and that's a good thing. But I think those are the two reasons he had trouble getting, you know, um, getting his word out there. But I think what... Russell Tice says rings true. We know for a fact that that when Bush started all the all his illegal spying, it was run out of Dick Cheney and his and a safe in his office. <laughs> but, well, that's been verified. Uh, he he had the safe where he put all his him and and uh, David Addington, his lawyer, did a lot of this shit at first, and. Um, and just told Bush to do it, or sometimes he didn't even tell Bush. Um, so the fact that that some of the orders came from Cheney 
I totally believe that. It's just amazing that that hasn't been picked up in light of this Edward and in light of the Snowden documents, because I mean, more, I guess, by the mainstream, because that he even goes as far as saying, you know, that this could potentially be blackmail on behalf of the NSA and that the NSA is kind of working on top of all these agencies, that there's like zero checks and balances with the national security state. So it's pretty damning stuff. I'm hoping Glenn Greenwald is hinting at a explosive new document which is supposedly will reveal some of the people who have been who have been spied on and maybe that will bolster this very issue great we'll see. you know you hear this talking point in the mainstream press constantly it's the framing of sort of the subject whenever snowden is brought up you know um how do we know that these documents supposedly uh, or how do we know these documents aren't putting American intelligence assets, lives in danger and things like that? And Russell, Russ Tice even recently said in a recent interview that he would have shot Snowden himself had Snowden released anything particularly juicier about actual things that could have harmed American intelligence gathering. So I wanted to know, you know, what if, I'm just saying what if, I, I'm not saying that I personally believe this and I'm sure Abby doesn't yeah. either, but what would be your opinion of Snowden if he did leak everything that he had onto the internet without any regard for, um, you know, protecting intelligence assets names? Would you, would you share that opinion that you think he should be shot or what would your, what would your take on that be? I'd say, well, you know, come what may, he did a heroic thing and it's better the world know the crimes that the government's committing, even if some innocent people might get killed. But it's all, that charge has been overblown because they like to scare people. Um, <clears throat> frankly, a lot of the people that might get exposed in their life might be in danger, probably are bad people anyway. <laughs> uh, uh, I, share, I, I, I share your view, I, I really do. I'm from the 70s. My hero in the 70s was Philip Agui, who exposed a whole list of names of CIA agents around the world because he figured rightly that the CIA was a dangerous, evil organization whose main task was to assassinate people. And he was right. That's beautiful. Um, so, too damn bad is all I can say, you know. I, I 100% agree, out, Mike. I was not aware, even after Philip McGee released his list, I didn't remember reading about any mass assassination assassinations of CIA agents around the world. Nothing much happened in that regard, so that charge was overblown anyway. Yeah, but in, in reality... I, I wouldn't worry uh, about it. I don't give a shit what happens to the CIA. I hope the organization is dismantled and destroyed. It's, it's dedicated to assassination. That's what they've always done. Um, they try to pretend to be an intelligence agency, um, and some, occasionally you get one who believes that because they've done intelligence analytical work, and that's fine, and they sit at a desk and do that. But largely, they do things like in Vietnam, the Phoenix program, which is a giant assassination program, and today they do the drone assassination program. That's what they do. They're an assassination agency. So fuck them. Great. Yeah. Uh, fully. Very, very well put. Well, let's talk about some of the, the, the criticisms of how this is all being done, um, because there's a lot of distrust now in Pierre Omidyar 
and people are saying that Glenn Greenwald is not distributing the leaks fast enough and stuff like that. I, I guess I just wanted to get your assessment on how the leaks are being distributed and the deal that Snowden has made with the journalists that he's put the leaks um, in the hands of to vet everything very carefully and do it this way. Well, you know, all these charges are totally baseless, crock of shit, and um, the proof is in the pudding. What is what is Glenn Greenwald produced? He's produced some wonderful revelations of what the government is doing. So what's wrong with that? Um, unfortunately, this is a capitalist society, and if you want to get the word out, you have to go to capitalists who have the printing presses or largely run the Internet. And so Greenwald made a deal is you know to to uh well first he worked for a newspaper he worked for a website now he made a deal with pierre omidyar who uh you know who promised to keep hands off uh his um journalist enterprise so as long as it does that, good as long as he does that and he seems to be doing that as far as i can tell what's what's wrong with it um i don't understand the charges from a lot of these overblown, oh, a lot of it is insane. Partic- the strongest crowd is the uh, ones who've gathered around Sabelle Edmonds, who, uh, as you may know, I put out an open letter to her when she started attacking Snowden and Greenwald. And I don't understand it because Sabelle Edmonds was herself a whistleblower, and for a while she did good work. And she defended other whistleblowers. And then, in the last year or so, since Snowden came out, she started this escalating series of articles on her website. First, she said, you know, Greenwald is sold, sold out to uh, Omidyar, and why doesn't he release all the documents? Then she turned around 180 degrees and said, oh, who cares what he says? We don't need Snowden. It's nothing new. You know, there's nothing new with Snowden. Who cares what he says? Then she raised it another level. Her last level was, Snowden is nothing but a thief. And then she cast doubt on whether Greenwald was even a journalist. And that's when I got really pissed off. Um, Because that's the line of the government. Yeah, and essentially, I mean, characterizing it that way would... Could that sets put, him up for prosecution. Exact, exactly. He's yeah. A thief, right? He's not a he's not a whistleblower. He's a thief. Yeah. Um, and then and then I've seen yeah. people even take it further than that. You know, um, other people as well saying that the you know it's like they've started where you where you described, and then as it escalated, it it sort of got into this even stranger place now, where people are saying that Snowden himself is some kind of intelligence agent. Um, and, and things like that. I'm wondering if you've heard that theory. In an <laughs> yeah, that he's like, a, a, that this is all an operation, that none of it's actually real. That's why they, they wanted to depict him as not a heroic whistleblower, but as some kind of and foreign agent. So, Right, so it's like switching it over to the U.S.-based agent. It's like you're either a Russian spy or you're an American spy. <laughs> They're trying to prosecute him under the Espionage Act. Right? That's the government's line. So that's why they're trying to call him, you know, Feinstein calls him a, a traitor, um, and, in the, and then Mike Rogers in the House 
suggests he might be an agent of the Russian Foreign Services. That's all along the same lines of discrediting what he's doing and setting him up for prosecution if they ever, if they ever get their hands on him. So, so respond precisely to the point that you just mentioned, which is that there's nothing, quote, nothing new in the documents, because this is something that I hear ad nauseum, and I don't understand it, because to me, we have documents, and isn't that enough? That's the fucking point. That's why it's <laughs> insane to say, you know, Snowden has nothing new. He has documents from inside the NSA. Nobody's done that before. Documents stand secret. Documents showing in PowerPoint slides exactly what they're doing, how they're tapping into fiber optic lines, how they're gathering, gathering people's data communications, how they're doing it, who, how, when. You know, we've never had that before. And it's hard evidence, very concrete, very broad, showing the depth and breadth, breadth of of the NSA operation and its documents that the government can't deny. Uh, and that puts the government in a spot because they can't deny it. And it shows how the NSA has their fingers in everything. And it's documents. Nobody else has released documents. So that's the whole point. <laughs> agree and I, I was trying to explain this to someone the other day who who told me the same thing that the, oh there's nothing new we already knew all this and you know they would reference people like Thomas Drake and even you as examples of why this is nothing new and you know when I point out to them something like that they, there's an actual photograph in one of these documents leaked that shows the NSA intercepting Cisco routers in the US mail opening the boxes right. up and putting a backdoor device in I mean that exactly I mean isn't that a, the government being caught red-handed committing an illegal act. I mean, it's a, it's a, like yes, a, it's, it, it is. And so, that's, I mean, that's why the government is trying to distract <laughs> people's attention by calling Snowden a, a Russian agent, because the government has been caught red-handed doing completely illegal things, spying on everybody, and they ought to be shamed and embarrassed. The ones that you know, in theory, ought to be doing the shaming and and. Prosecuting is Congress, but Congress is in on the whole thing themselves and is trying to protect the government. That's why it hasn't become exactly the scandal like, say, the Church Committee in the 70s, because Congress is not doing shit. They're trying to cover for, for the government. Right, and another good point that Kurt Wiebe made up on, on my show is when he said, that when you talk to people about just the documents, you know, you, you talk about words like prison, boundless informant, people's eyes glaze over. They don't understand what the documents say. I wouldn't understand what the documents say if I'm just looking at the raw documents. God knows what's in the WikiLeaks files. There's probably so much that we still have, don't know because we haven't combed through them. But so I guess in that sense, even though I, I'm more in line with let's release everything now and let's find out kind of the full damage that exists, but at the same time, I really appreciate the journalistic output examining the documents and uh, analyzing the documents and kind of providing some context to them so we can understand why they matter. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think they've done a fine job of sifting through it and figuring out what's going on and presenting in a rational, you know, way what the documents mean. If you just dump 
a few hundred thousand or a million documents, it's not going to mean much to a lot of people because a lot of it's in code words that people don't don't understand. It has to be explained and analyzed. Um, so that's the job of the journalist. Um, right. And anyway, so and I wouldn't I wouldn't put the NSA in the exact same bag as say the CIA, which I was ranting about before. The NSA are uh, signals intelligence. The CIA, as I said, is basically they do assassinations. Now there's a, a link between the two. The two, the NSA provides the tracking for, for the CIA to do the assassination. So there is a link there, and the NSA has blood on its hands. Uh, so, but so like when they do drone assassinations, uh, a lot of that's come out. Basically, they track cell phones, and that's what the yeah. NSA does. And when they track a cell phone, which according to various algorithms is suspicious, then they bomb it. And it seems that they don't even bother to figure out who it is they're bombing. They're basically bombing a cell phone. And apparently, from what I read recently, it's the way they think of it. It's a cell phone with a bad rep. Oh, it's extremely, extremely insane to think that they're actually killing people based on the metadata tracking of a cell phone. When you can hand over your cell phone to anyone and your grandma can take it in the house or church and then... That's how they kill people, by accident. Uh, you know, innocent people uh, who are not, you know, jihadist terrorists. Yeah, the cell phones get passed around or they might be in the house where the guy is has his family... Or, you know, but anyway, that's what they track cell phones. I, I read that recently, and they said that numerous times. They're tracking suspicious cell phones. And that's another thing that we found out for sure with the documents. <laughs> like that, that's another document that proved that. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, a, a, I guess, a more philosophical question about what, you know, what you've learned from all this. When you, when you discovered this at AT&T and, and, you know, and your whole body of knowledge and your experience being an anti-war protester, following the you know the church committee back in the seventies, do you believe even even at all? I mean, like you know, one even one percent of your your being, do you believe that the government set up this domestic NSA spying grid in any way to prevent terrorism? Um, that's a little hard to say to pinpoint exactly. Um, I guess how legitimate do you believe that claim is today? Um, that it was, that it's designed or the people who designed it believe they were protecting us from terrorism. Certainly a lot of them themselves believe it. And there might be well-meaning people, you know, even inside the CIA who think they're fighting, fighting bad people who are, and they're protecting America from attack. But, um, the fact is, as I said before, the government has an agenda, and they look for an opportunity. And there's evidence all over the place that the government wanted to do mass spying even before 9-11. Oh, yeah. There's, ev there's evidence, for instance, that some of the phone companies were approached in 2001 yeah. to uh, hand over their phone metadata. 
And we know this because one company said no. That was Quest. Oh, okay. I, I didn't um, know that. Yes, Quest uh, said no, and then they got into trouble for that later. And his CEO, the CEO of Quest, funny thing, was later prosecuted for some mysterious financial shenanigans. Um, he complained at his trial that all the, the uh, um, contracts he wanted to get from the government didn't work out after he said no to the NSA approach. But the point is, they wanted to do, government wanted to spy on everybody before 9-11. Yeah. And, and so they, didn't, they couldn't have the excuse of protecting people from terrorism before 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, they don't trust the population. That's what it boils down to. And so when 9-11 came along, it was the perfect excuse to ram that through. Some of them might believe that they needed it to fight terrorism. Others might be just cynically using that line to push through their agenda. I think those at the top are just cynical about it, um, and they just keep pushing that line no matter what. They still, they still do that. Um, but the pre-9-11 phone company st- stuff is evidence that it has little to nothing to do with fighting terrorism. Do you, you know, going back to the era of the church committee when it was revealed that, you know, Nixon or LBJ, maybe both of them were using the NSA to stifle or to even do um, COINTELPRO on anti-war activism, does that thought ever cross your mind nowadays that the NSA, now that they have so much more of a a powerful spine grid today in 2014, um, what are your thoughts on that related to like um, activism in the United States? Will that have a stifling effect or a potential stifling effect on that? I think it already has. Uh, I think they squashed the Occupy movement through a judicious use of, not even judicious, that's the wrong word, through a excessive use of police power and selected prosecution of certain activists in various places like in Seattle, I think, and other places where they, well, in New York, they just prosecuted a woman from, um, because she elbowed a cop, right? She got seven years in jail, um, that sort of thing. Uh, I'm sure um, that has an intimidating effect on a lot of people. Um, and that's not I, even factoring in the potential NSA or, or surveillance aspect of it. That's just... right. Um, you know, it doesn't work forever. Um, history shows that at some point there's, there's a, a pent-up social explosion comes out when people have had enough and um, um, what, when governments fall is when people lose their fear. Many people have said that. I think they said that recently in the Arab Spring, you know, people were were, were afraid to do anything under, under the Mubarak dictatorship. And then suddenly, something happens, and people suddenly lose their fear. They pour out in the streets, and they rip apart the police limb by limb, and the police flee. And once they see that, then the government is exposed naked and then you have a revolutionary situation. I guess what 
I guess what worries me is that you have this government who's, you know, the biggest military force in the world supplying all these dictatorships with their weaponry. And um, here you have Egypt just sentencing like 700 people in mass to death for simply being supporters of Morsi, et cetera. And so when you have the biggest military might and a militarized police force across the country that literally does not allow peaceful protests, I don't know what it's going to take, Mark, because we've already seen the extent of NSA spying. I don't know what else people need to know in order to have that resistance be building. And I don't know if it is just under the radar or what. I mean, I just wanted to get your opinion as someone who has been involved in anti-war activism for your whole life, pretty much, or since the 60s. Um, what do you think about just the the anti-war movement and what is it going to take for us to really change and get this system out? Uh, I wish I had a, a complete nutshell answer <laughs> because uh, I would be very rich or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, this is the problem that everyone is working on. Let me sketch out the problems that are bottling up um, a breakout of resistance in this country. One of them is that everyone's locked into the two-party system. Mm-hmm. People have to first realize the Democratic Party is nothing but a trap. And what we really need is a third party that answers to ordinary working people. Now, how you get that is something else. But people have to come first to the realization that that's what we need. Because a lot of things, like in the last five years, for instance, what's paralyzed a lot of people, particularly the labor movement, which I see as key to change. I'm not talking about the labor officials who are a bunch of fucking labor assholes (laughs) and have stood in the way of any action because they're in bed with their companies. Um, I know that's true at AT AT&T and it's true with the other companies. The labor officials don't just want to maintain their contracts and so forth. But the power of labor is what I'm talking about. But that's been paralyzed for years because labor does not want to upset the Democratic Party. All they can think of is getting the next Democrat elected. So they're afraid to strike. They're afraid to uh, denounce Obama for doing something bad because they want to get the next Democrat elected. I'm just giving this as an example of how Mm -hmm. that that mindset paralyzes the labor movement, and it paralyzes the left in general. That whole being chained to the Democratic Party and worry about worrying about the next fucking election. Um, mm-hmm. Elections are nice, and it's nice to be able to elect the people, and it's nice to have that Democratic right. But frankly, in the long-term historical frame of things, great changes don't happen by elections. Right. Um, but how you get to a revolutionary change. But first you have people have to realize what's what moves things. And the two party system is the biggest problem in this country. I totally agree. And it's amazing that we are one of the only countries that has that, isn't it, Mark? I mean here we have these leaders doubling down on American exceptionalism. Meanwhile, we have pretty much the worst form of politics, a two party dictatorship. I mean I don't know. I mean, you can argue about parliamentary systems and how much better they are, but at least you can have some sort of third-party representation. Yeah. 
that has a long history. It goes back to largely the race issue in this country has divided, prevented, a, for instance, a labor party from forming race. And in the 19th century, the divisive issue was religion. And I think that this whole, I think the the Cold War really really damaged um, critical thinking in this country in terms of thinking more left than the Democratic Party because, I mean, I'm I'm pretty radical and I know my brother is too and it sounds like you are as well and I'm offended by Democrats calling themselves leftists. I mean, it's neoliberalism. It's extremely destructive and when you look at foreign policy, it's basically locked up with neoconservatism. And so I feel like this whole revolt revolting nature against even the terms socialism is extremely destructive because you're basically abandoning these ideals that aren't like us. I don't know. It's just been painted in such a way that people won't even pay attention to you if you start discussing things that are more left than the Democrats because they equate it to like communist tyranny. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, when there's not much social struggle going on, which I would characterize this country, well, for a long time, I'm afraid. One index is the number of strikes in this country. If you count the number of strikes, they more or less petered out to almost nothing since about 1980. Uh, when there's not much social struggle, it's mm -hmm. hard to talk to people about, you know, doing left things. But then when suddenly when social struggle breaks out in the streets, you know, talking things like, like the civil rights movement, for instance, mm -hmm. or, you know, or the anti-war movement, when people were marching in the hundreds of thousands and even striking occasionally, um, that opens people's minds to more left-wing ideas. People have to see things happening in motion. Um, so when you're in a sort of quiet period now, you can, can't expect to talk to thousands of ones. You talk to a handful of people once, or maybe you have a podcast and talk to a few more people, but, but times change and then something happens and suddenly things open up. The thing is you can't predict how and when that's going to happen. You just have to talk about what's needed right right and yeah these labels are really preventing us from really furthering that dialogue because yeah it's, it's about the necessities of society and how we can work together and cooperate and by kind of reverting back to these old failed paradigms that were abused and manipulated to fit whatever the hell dictatorial regimes wanted them that does not apply to what we need it's about decentralization and trying to like try to work together cooperation and I mean, it's amazing that we have like one representative for like, you know, tens of thousands of people and, and that's in a good state. I mean, like, it's just, it's completely defunct and it needs to be revamped, um, entirely. Robbie, do you have anything else to add before we wrap it up? Um, I guess I wanted to just ask you one last question about the, the whole private sector angle of this. Um, it, it, I guess you know, besides fully opting out of the system and by opting out, I mean like going completely off the grid. What is your, do you have any faith or hope in the future of these, you know, technology data mining companies to 
actually respect you know our privacy on just an ethical level um and and sort of say no to the government and on the other hand actually start respecting user privacy more like with things Mm -hmm. like google email sniffing or or do you think that's just a new normal now that we can't go back on i wouldn't say you can't go back on it but you have to look at it in a bigger picture i i i think it's all rooted in this whole capitalist empire system and that's what drives the whole thing the spying stuff is really just an offshoot of empire and war, which is tied to empire. Why do they have war? They're building and protecting their empire. And the surveillance and spying is an offshoot of the war. And um, they don't trust their own population. I'm talking about the, the capitalist class, and there is a capitalist class. We talk about it as the 1%, if you want to call it, the rich and the super rich. They're worried about, you know, people, the large majority of the population who are getting poorer. And a vast sea of poor people among a handful of rich people, all those rich people get scared. And that's really the driving force for surveillance. They don't trust the population they're scared of the population. It's a sign of a government that's detached from the people. It's not a people's government. It's, it's a government of the ruling class, a, a small minority of rich and super rich. And um, as long as that's the case, uh, they'll continue to try to spy on everybody. Um, so as I'm trying to indicate, there's a huge need for a complete change in the whole societal societal structure here. Right. I mean, even Princeton just came out with a study saying that we live in an oligarchy. I don't know how, I don't know what else you need. Like most elite institutions are even just acknowledging what, what kind of system we live in. Back in the 50s and 60s, right. uh, they denied there was any classes and people, they just said, oh, everybody, we do elections and it's very democratic. Well, that, that sort of flew by people and was somewhat accepted because there was seemed to be a fat middle class which seemed to be able to have some sway over what Congress did. Right. But now, but now that's gotten naked. Now the, the middle class has been shredded and the union movement has been shredded and the union movement is what created the middle class, frankly. And now Congress has been nakedly exposed as being run by a bunch of rich lobbyists. And they've made it clear, particularly the Republicans that have no, no shame and no, no desire to even cover their you know, PR flank. Yeah, and unfortunately, in the wake of 9-11, um, all of the money that even was going towards social services is just completely just abandoned because it's just all been about fighting a, a non-existent threat. So it's like whatever middle class existed, that's like by the wayside now. And they shamelessly don't even give a fuck about you. No. I, I never thought, I, I'm not trying to paint the Democrats as better, but I was really, even I was a little shocked to see a, a party, I'm talking about the Republicans, proud and boastful 
that they're denying people medical care. Yeah, 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 yeah. People cheer them on when they're saying, we're not going to give you health care. And everyone's like, yeah. I mean, 50 years, 60 years <laughs> ago, even the Republican Party would boast that they built a local hospital in your neighborhood, right? That's what would, would be how congressmen would get elected. They got you services. They got you a hospital or whatever. But now they just deny people stuff, and they're shameless, you know? It's it's unbelievable, Mark. Um, thank you so much for... Is there anything else you wanted to say before we wrap Hello? it up? No, you guys mouthed off too much already. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure hearing uh, hearing your story and all of your insight, Mark. I'm, I'm really, really happy you took the time. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Um, maybe I'll talk to you later in the week, right? Well, we're going to do an interview on Breaking the Set. And Robbie... Um, yeah, thanks for coming on, Mark. It was a pleasure for me as well. Okay. And um, right, take care.
Thank you.